Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The content that's explicit will not come with a warning except for this. So bear in mind what I am saying. This show is explicit content. It's Monday, December 11th, 2017, from Slate, it's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. I'm in Chicago, hosting Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me this week, and as I look around at the denizens of this fair, windy city, I have to say, I have a lot of sympathy for them. It's cold, they think putting pickles or relish on a hot dog elevates their cuisine to heights that it probably does not elevate it to. The sausage is great, it's just, they get more into the fact that they put a little pickle on the hot dog than the actual quality of the tubed meat itself. Tubed meat, high above the garnish for the hot dog. But you know, I'm a sympathetic guy. I have a lot of sympathy for people. Empathy has become a really big thing, a buzzword, a watchword. I don't know that I'm so empathetic. To me, I feel like dragged into the state of empathy, really feeling and looking at the world through, through someone else's eyes. It's very taxing. I think sympathy alone will get you where you need to go. And I have sympathy even for people that you wouldn't think I'd be sympathetic to. Like I said, Chicago, I'll tell you this. I'm a fan of my sports teams. I'm not, you know, crazy about it. Fan is rooted in fanatic. But I'm sympathetic to anyone who roots for any other team. I, I made fun of Phillies fans the other week. That's because Philadelphia fans are by far the worst on the planet, right? If you think the Chicagoans get crazy about the fact that they put a pickle on a hot dog, oh my God, a soft pretzel, some must a cheese steak. I mean, you could have that. We all, the rest of us pretty much passed on it. And it's not that it doesn't taste good. I mean, of course it tastes good. It's cheese and greasy steak. It's going to taste good. Just like, don't define your city about it. But I'm sympathetic. You grew up with it. We have regional pride. As a New Yorker, I'm, I'm no better. I was just raised in a different environment with, uh, you know, knishes and better cuisine. I'm sympathetic. You know, I'm even sympathetic to like lifelong Republicans who are torn in Alabama. Obviously, how do you vote for the child molester tomorrow? Alleged. How do you vote for that guy? But I'm sympathetic. I understand. You don't want to violate your most sacredly held beliefs, uh, be they about abortion or the Ten Commandments. You love the Ten Commandments. This guy's Mr. Ten Commandments. I didn't see anything about 14-year-old girls in your underwear in the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, he asked the mother for permission. That's honoring the Ten Commandments. So I'm a little sympathetic. I can't say I'm empathetic, but I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic towards thieves and pickpockets. Con men, pickpockets, that's a skill. I know you're taking my money or someone's money, but you learned a craft. I understand. 
It's an ancient skill. You, you're in a guild. It goes back to Fagan. I'm actually sympathetic to Kim Jong-un. I mean, he's a bad guy. I wish he didn't exist. But I understand why, if you're born into that family, you want to keep up the tradition and you want to keep your palaces or whatever. And he's just playing the game. He's not playing the game as I would define morality. But, you know, according to his morality, you got to have sympathy, I say. So I'm a say, except for one category of person. And this category does not appear yet. This category of person has not reared his or her, going to say probably his head. And here it is. The person I do not and will not have sympathy for is the guy who loses all his money investing in Bitcoin tomorrow. Because it's going to happen. I mortgaged my house for Bitcoin. I put the kid's college fund in Bitcoin. How could it not go up? It's crashing. And I have no sympathy for you. And maybe if you're a gist listener... Thinking about shifting all his or her, going to say his assets to the Bitcoin. Know this. I will not have any retroactive sympathy for you. I will have more sympathy for the Alabama voter or the Phillies fan or possibly both. On the show today, well, Alabama and abortion and voting. I will be talking about that in the spiel. But first, an American journalist moves to China, attempts to navigate the education system, all the while keeping in mind... The aphorism, one generation plants the tree, the next sits in the shade. Ah, Lenora Chu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In so many works of literature, an egg is a symbol And in this work of literature, well, it's not literature, it's nonfiction, the egg becomes symbolic of a parent's struggle with a child and a school's insistence that the child do things their way. The name of the book is Little Soldiers, an American Boy, a Chinese School, and the Global Race to Achieve. Lenora Chu is the author. She's the boy's mother. And she's going to tell us about the egg. Let's start with the egg. And then maybe we could go back and talk about the school itself. Sure. The egg represented so much for me. So the first week of school, my son is pretty much the only American in a Chinese state-run kindergarten. Teacher Chen lined up the 30 kids in her classroom and forced them all to eat eggs. My son, being who he is, spit it out. And on the fourth time, he had no choice but to swallow. Okay. A couple things. You said force them all to eat eggs. Of the every other Chinese kid in that class, would they have felt that they were being forced to eat eggs? Good point. And that's where the cultural differences <laughs> yeah, come in, yeah. right? <laughs> so what was egg eating like in your house before the four times My son hated. down the hatch? My yeah. son hated to eat eggs. And the Chinese think it's very nutritious. It's just a requirement of every child. Yeah. And, how could you not eat eggs? Exactly. Yeah. And this wasn't an allergy thing. There was no sense that this would be bad for him. The kid just hated it. You had a certain way of trying to convince him to to eat eggs, which is through logic and the recognition that nutrition is good for you. And the Chinese had an entirely different way. Which is teacher knows best. Yeah. Now, now let's talk about the school. The school is the kind of school that, as you say, celebrities and party apparatchiks and everyone is dying to get into. And you got into the school. You got your kid into school. So you thought that was 
that you had arrived. You and Rainey had arrived. That's right. Especially, you know, when you hear the wait list is a mile long and people are jumping through hoops, you often want whatever that thing is, mm-hmm. right? But the experience was very different. Well, well, so tell me how you got into the school. Well, there were a lot of casual walk-bys to see if, you know, ha- the gate happened to be open and we could spot the principal. There were a lot of phone calls. There was a lot of networking with people who were already in the school. I mean, we really tried everything. And I think it was really just luck. One day they sort of called us after we'd left some pathetic note, you know, with a guard. And they said, you know, are you looking for a school? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why we are. We laid the groundwork and then it all worked out. Now, when you say we, I think it's important to get into the dynamics of who the we are. Tell, tell us about you and your husband. And uh, you sent your he- husband actually on the mission that worked. That's true. So, so tell me all about that. I am Chinese American, born and raised in the U.S., went to Texas public schools, but I am a Chinese face, right? My husband is blonde haired, blue eyed, and he happens to speak Mandarin because he spent some time in the Peace Corps in China in, in his 20s. So the Chinese are really fascinated by people who look like bona fide foreigners like my husband who speak Chinese. So I sent him on a mission. Right, right. It seems to me that they sort of take it as a compliment that a guy who looks like him would speak Chinese and they take it as an insult that a woman like who looks like you would speak Chinese the way you do, which is probably not as good as him. That's (laughs) true. Right, right. They really love the idea of Caucasian foreigners who look like my husband taking an interest in the culture. Was your interest in the school just that it had a good reputation, as you say, and that people wanted to get into it? Or did you do research about the methods and what kind of teaching would be going on? You know, at the time, and you still see the research, you know, bilingualism makes you smarter. Yeah. And, you know, we just like the idea that he would learn Mandarin, which is the most spoken language in the world, alongside, you know, learning English from us. And it just seemed like a great idea at the time. Yeah. And Shanghai was making these, uh, making lists for being the best education system in the world or among the best, that this was the best school of the best education system. And oh, by the way, it was free. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the downside? No brainer. Okay. So you get into the school and you had to anticipate that there'd be some culture clash. Was it just bigger than you imagined or was it in ways you hadn't imagined? You know, I'm an optimist. I always thought that I was going to be able to get the teacher and the principal to see my way. You know, the asthma inhaler. Where do we keep the asthma inhaler for my son? It needs to be close enough to the classroom that he can access it in case of emergency. The teacher say, no, it needs to be kept in the nurse's station. But it's 20 minutes away. You know, all of these things, should there be an air filter in the classroom? Should my son have to lie still at nap time for two hours? hours, even if he'd outgrown the nap. It became very clear to me the Chinese really value group over the individual. Whatever individual need that I had, it was not worth discussing. Right. So was either side right or wrong? And that is why I began to wonder where on the balance should this lie? Because once I started to sort of, I wouldn't say submit, but just trust a little bit more that the teachers knew what they were doing, I saw the benefits. Right. So tell me if you either uh, played it in the book in a certain way for maximum impact. But in the beginning, I was a little surprised that it did seem that you asserted your Westernness so often. There was maybe a line or two where you said, look, I knew I was in America and this was China. It was different. But in the beginning, when there was so much tension over almost everything, I didn't find too many instances of you saying, you kind of surrendering to maybe they know best or maybe even if they don't don't know best, it's not true that I know best. That's a great point. And you know what? It's because the Chinese are insecure themselves too. They, oh, that's interesting. They think that we in America have a few things figured out. You know, they weren't going to bend on the asthma inhaler. They weren't going to bend on the egg eating. But certain things like how do you foster creativity? That's what they're looking to the U.S. for. And because they had this insecurity, 
I sort of had confidence that they were sort of moving in the right direction. And this was sort of a school that is on the forefront. Teacher Chen was clearly authoritarian and very old school. She was in her late 40s. But the next year, there were, we had a younger teacher, and, and she had a lot more um, traits that I could I believed in. Over the years, did they ever warm up to you and even ask you for ideas about creativity or ideas that they could tap into that American they think Americans do well? My son's second teacher, she was really interested in what we did at home in the U.S. And, you know, here's a great example. He had a tennis coach in the U.S. and he had a tennis coach in China. And the Chinese tennis coach, they would just sit there and drill forehands for three hours. And by the end of three hours, my son had a killer forehand, but he also hated the sport, right? And so we do certain things better in the U.S. because you mix it up a little bit. You mix up a drill with some, you know, some footwork, and then you throw in a game so that people get the competitive and the fun aspect of it. The Chinese aren't quite there yet. And this was still an intense lesson. It's just how you break down That's the right. intense tennis lesson. That's right, right. right. And so the Chinese, they really are like, how do you get your kids to love learning, even to have fun? Fun is not really a word that's part of the Chinese culture. It is just starting to be. But these were the cues they were looking from from me. I would also imagine if you're at their point where they are developmentally, their method is probably better. And maybe in the 1850s, America wasn't all about fun either. You know, it was about building a country and building up our young people and discipline and almost no leisure time. I love the idea that genius means struggle, right? Because in the U.S., we think genius should just come naturally. Some kids have it and some kids don't. But in China, my son has totally internalized this idea that if he works hard enough, he can achieve anything. And I didn't have to teach him that lesson. It's around the way the culture talks about hard work and effort. It's around, you know, what the teachers say to him when he's not doing well in the classroom. It's about working harder. It's not about, oh, you're so smart or this kid's not smart. I love that lesson. And I think we should learn that here. People would love that. But can you have a kid who believes that without shoving the egg in his mouth four times without and you didn't you mentioned nap time but they hold you down for nap time don't they yeah so that they literally restrain you so this is a story about extremes (laughs) the chinese swing so far off the deep end in some of these things in testing suppressing a child's will and making them nap you know they haven't really learned they're they don't have access to dr spock and all these things that we read about here and they're just now learning the chinese really believe in early rigor you set kids on the right habits and path to discipline, and then you let go. It's not about helicoptering, as you might think. Mm -hmm. You also, in the book, expose, there's an expose element to it. As much as American parents might valorize Singapore math or the Shanghai methods, there's a huge downside. There's flat-out corruption in the Absolutely. Chinese system. Tell yeah. me a little about that. <laughs> Around Chinese New Year, which is a huge gifting time for teachers and anyone. It, New Year. In, yeah, yeah, important in your <laughs> life. You know, I hear all my the parents sort of planning elaborate gifts. Louis Vuitton, Prada, you know, coach. And I bumble my way through trying to attempt a coach purse and the teacher basically rejects it. And I realize that coach was last year, now it's Louis Vuitton, and next year it's Tory Burch, <laughs> you know. So there's a lot of money swirling around in the system. And that's because Chinese culture values gifting, but you couple it with this high-stakes system where you have to take a test to get ahead. You have to educate yourself well to get ahead and move into the next level of schooling. And you see teachers and administrators returning the favor somehow with a better seat in class. There's back doors for admissions. Mm-hmm. And this is a problem. Okay. There are extremes of essentially bribing a teacher with a Louis Vuitton purse. However, 
in that society, teachers are held in really high esteem. And in America, they're certainly not. And it would be better if in America that they were. Granted, they take that a bit too far, but I don't know that I wouldn't trade the overall esteem that the Chinese have for the educator for uh, where the educator stands in America. So you like the Chinese way, that they respect the teacher. Definitely. I mean, think about how teachers are talked about in America, just these people who are, you know, taking our money because of their pensions and they're looked down upon and they're just civil servants punching a clock. I'd like to have two months off in summer also. You know, so I gave my book talk in San Francisco and one parent yelled out from the audience, I decide whether to respect my teacher. And I'm thinking we have to start somewhere. And the Chinese, you know, there was a survey that came out in 2014. They hold teachers on the same social status level as doctors. Imagine that. Yeah. And the government knows you have to increase teacher pay. And that's actually a line in their na- um, their latest national education reform plan. Heighten the social status of teachers. They got something figured out there. What has been the consequence of your book for your son's education? He is sort of a little superstar, you know, in his Shanghai circles. But what about the teachers? What about the schools? Do they know to treat you a little carefully? Here's my question. <laughs> Are they moving the asthma inhaler within a five-minute walk? You know, it's funny. So his teachers now are, I'm not writing about his teachers now, and I'm worried that they think I'm sort of this sort of stealth detective that's watching their every move. Yeah. Um, but I'm sort of moving on to other topics. Yeah. Let him think that. It might be it yeah, might work that's out true. for you. That's true. Just a little bit of fear, right? Yeah, just a little bit. Throwing it back your way. You just, watch out. Yeah. They might give during a uh, <laughs> awkward parent teacher conference, just like lick the tip of a pencil and go, interesting. Just and write it down in the notebook. Just, yeah. yeah. Just like mm, scratch the chin. <laughs> the name of the book is Little Soldiers, an American boy, a Chinese school, and the global race to achieve. Also, a uh, Chinese American mom, and her name is Lenora Chu. She was with me. Thank you, Lenora. Good to meet you. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. I was thinking about Alabama. I was thinking about this vote tomorrow. I was thinking about the issue of abortion and how it's playing just huge there. As we heard John Archibald say on our show on Friday, Doug Jones's pro-choice stance is so big to so many Alabama voters, they cannot possibly pull the lever for him. And let me say, it's not my stance. I don't think it's uh, the right stance. If I were a committed Catholic or Christian who is against abortion, I would like to think like a committed Catholic or Christian who is against, say, contraception. I wouldn't want government to make a law about it. I just want to convince people not to do it. But, you know, that's, I suppose, the pro-choice person's impression of how they'd be as a pro-lifer. Because if you're against abortion, you don't think of it as an issue. You really do think of it as baby killing. So as a thought exercise in trying to sympathize or empathize with someone who's against abortion, just change the word abortion to infanticide. And so how much countenancing of infanticide should the government do? How many votes would you cast for someone who's okay with infanticide or infanticide until the baby's six months old, something like that? So I get it. I get why it's a hard vote. But abortion's an interesting issue, and I was talking about it a couple of weeks ago with Lawrence O'Donnell of MSNBC. We aired the interview I did with him about his book on the 1968 election. But in talking to him, the issue of abortion was raised, and I asked him about how that affected politics. Now, I'm going to kind of talk you through highlights of that interview. So first, we'll join O'Donnell. And his point is that the Republican Party, especially Donald Trump now, but the Republican Party has been 
a party of grievance and a party of never letting go of a lost cause or being on the losing side. So let's join it as he makes the point that there are some issues that Republicans have lost but won't acknowledge it. There's a bunch of other uh, issues that developed over time, including abortion and other things that have presented two sides that have never gotten over the fight, meaning the losing side of the fight has never gotten over the fight. And so the losing side of the fight about legality of abortion in America has obviously never gotten over it. Now, I don't know if I totally agree with him. Um, Losing side as if it were set in stone, that we're never going back. I mean, we see there's some backsliding on the issue of uh, women's reproduction as it is. But I take his point. And now I'm going to talk into the point I made, which was I was thinking about this and I was thinking about the Kennedys and in a way how lucky they were to be Democrats in a time before the issue of abortion as a political issue was so salient. In fact, to have predated Roe versus Wade in John F. Kennedy's case by uh, 13 years. Here is the point I made to O'Donnell. Uh, It's kind of a long-winded point, but hey, so is this set up to that point. Here, listen. What if Roe versus Wade had happened before John F. Kennedy's tenure? And what if to be a good Democrat in his era, you had to be pro-choice? Would maybe the Democratic coalition, the idea that he uh, enthralled the white working class, maybe that wouldn't be true. Maybe we wouldn't see all these, you know, Catholics with a picture of the Pope and John F. Kennedy hung up in their house. That well, that alone could have changed everything we thought about him. Yeah, and I actually I actually don't think it's possible for a bunch of reasons that, that Roe Let me interrupt O'Donnell to say he didn't really take the bait on my question or my supposition. He just gave a very grounded, in fact, recitation of why Roe versus Wade couldn't have been decided in the time of the Kennedys. But think about it. Without the issue of abortion, it was possible for a Democrat to maybe be pro-life, maybe be pro-choice, but you wouldn't know and it wouldn't be a litmus test. Now, I think Roe versus Wade... It was decided, you know, emanations of penumbras in the phrasing of the Supreme Court. It's a little screwy, Louie. The result was good. I think it's proper that states not be allowed to outlaw abortion. However, because of it, there were a couple of ripple effects. And one is that there was a clear demarcation. It was one of the reasons why the parties became sorted. Not S-O-R-D-I-D, but sorted. Democrats used to be conservative and liberal. There was a very robust wing of the liberal party that stopped being the case. And it stopped being the case right around the time of Roe versus Wade, because there came a point when you just simply couldn't be a conservative and identify as pro-choice. Many conservatives do say, well, I'm a pro-choice conservative, but the rest of the conservatives say, well, you're not really conservative in that area then. Certain Northeast conservatives say they are, uh, especially when they're serving in the Northeast, like Rudy Giuliani is or was, or Chris Christie, and then they'll pivot a little bit when they want to appeal to conservatives nationally. But this is, this is a consequence of progress. So like I said, I think that it is proper that abortion stays legal in the United States. But as a consequence of it, Democrats have no chance in many Southern states where they will just not entertain that idea. So you really do have a conundrum. I know Roy Moore seems like the worst guy. He is the worst guy. Forget the child molestation. Just his thoughts on Muslims uh, are totally un-American. And his thoughts on homosexuality 
is are definitely antiquated, although that was, you know, pretty much in the mainstream of thought 20 years ago. The thinking a Muslim shouldn't be in Congress is just unconscionable to me. But we have this situation where because of the issue of abortion, there are a couple others like it, but I really think abortion is a touchstone. There's no going over to the other side of that line. I know that there were always issues like let's take civil rights and the civil rights issue was as much a litmus test for a lot of people as abortion is now. But the difference with civil rights is some Democrats were for it. Some Democrats were against it. Some Republicans were for it. Some Republicans are against it. Once you have ideologically sorted parties and once you have such a prominent litmus test, you make it impossible to cross the aisle for a lot of people. You make a state like Alabama, you make it so hard for the majority of people in that state to vote for a Democrat who is pro-choice. And in the Democratic Party, you've also made it so very, very hard for any candidate to be pro-choice. It's a conundrum. It's the price of progress. I mean, would you rather have the ability of a Democrat to say, yes, I'm pro-life. Maybe in this case, you know, for the vote tomorrow, you want it. But I think most people who are pro-choice want their party, the Democratic Party, to be pro-choice with very, very few exceptions. And that's the thing about progress. I know to get to a place where your policy goals are encoded in law, it's seen as a struggle, abortion rights, gay marriage, But most of the struggle is seen as a struggle to get to the place where the law reflects the world as you want it to be. What I'm saying is once you're there, it comes at a price too. And one of the reasons that politics is so polarized and one of the reasons that we're at each other's throats is that we really, really believe different things. And these different things are more or less perfectly reflected in our political parties. So what I'm saying is this vote in Alabama, which seems like it could deliver the most regressive result we've ever seen, is actually, in a bizarre way, one consequence of the progress we've made. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname, who's always said one generation steeps the tea, the next gets a nice caffeinated buzz. Just was also produced by Mary Wilson, who says one generation bathes the baboon, the next enjoys a fresh baboon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast, and he says one generation goes up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, A, B, and the next gets unlimited lives in Contra. The gist, one generation buys the easy pass, the next speeds through the Throg's Neck Bridge toll. What I'm saying is thanks for lending me the car, Dad. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.